Episode 11 of Poem Life, The Play is the Thing. I want to start this podcast with a quote from the writer Annie Prue. You should write because you love the shape of stories and sentences and the creation of different words on a page. Writing comes from reading, and reading is the finest teacher of how to write. So this quote sums up why I think I became a writer, and specifically a poet. I've always loved reading, even when I couldn't read. I loved looking at the words on a page. I loved books, magazines, and comic books. I loved things that had writing on them. Album covers, cereal boxes, posters, cigar boxes, Cracker Jack boxes. In this podcast, I'm spending a lot of time talking about the things I read that inspired and motivated me, that perhaps shaped my life as a poet. The act of reading and the solitary function of that act cannot be separated. So I loved and love both reading and solitude. At the same time, I love doing things in groups with my friends or my teammates as a teenager and with my family for the most part as an adult. So, here's where another quote comes to mind. This is uh, something that Thomas Mann said in the book Death in Venice and Other Tales. Solitude gives birth to the original in us, to beauty unfamiliar and perilous, to poetry. But also, it gives birth to the opposite, to the perverse, the illicit, the absurd. So in other words, I like being alone, but I ain't no Unabomber. I couldn't even be a Thoreau who said, I would rather sit on a pumpkin and have it all to myself than be crowded on a velvet cushion. Yeah, Henry, I'm not going to be sitting on a pumpkin, unless you put a cushion of velvet on it. So like anything, solitude and a life of reading and writing can be taken to an extreme in ways that lead not to imaginative productivity, but to destructive proclivity. I just came up with that phrase. I kind of like it. I honestly don't remember sitting down and writing all of these poems that I have saved since I was a kid. I have stacks of them, handwritten, typed on spiral paper, loose leaf, onion skin, typing paper, legal pad papers. I don't remember writing them. How long did it even take? How much time did I spend by myself in my room writing this stuff? I definitely had a lot of time on my hands, especially in the summer. I worked since the time I was 12, but normally only on Saturdays and Sundays. So the whole week loomed in front of me. I remember playing restaurant with my brother and sisters and the motel game that I had mentioned in an earlier podcast. We played Monopoly and Clue and Risk and Trouble and all kinds of card games. I also acted out plays on my own. And this is the place where I think that reading and solitude came together into a new form in my life. I remember reading and acting out parts of John Millington Singh's The Playboy of the Western World. I was Pusheen, the barkeep, and I turned the ironing board into the bar and delivered my lines there. I particularly remember 
delivering the last line of the play. Oh, my grief, I've lost him surely. I've lost the only playboy of the Western world. I remember thinking this play was somewhat naughty and that I was getting away with something by reading and acting it out. When I did a search of the play today, I read this about its language. The play is best known for its use of the poetic, evocative language of Hiberno-English, heavily influenced by the Irish language as Singh celebrates the lyrical speech of the Irish. So I didn't know what Hiberno-English meant, so I had to look that up too. It just means Irish-English dialect. There's also a character in this play named Sean. I'm sure I like that, even though it was a male character. And I also like that it was set in Ireland because I assumed our family had some Irish roots and in recent years we have learned that we do indeed. Another play I acted out was one with far less literary value but was fun nonetheless. It's called Deadly Earnest by Donald Payton. It was a play basically written for high school drama classes. The copy I have is a paperback with number 12, Betty Lou Wilkinson, written at the top across the cover. This was a play my mom was in when she was a junior in high school at Locust Grove High School, probably 1957. The play's copyright is 1953. On the character page, mom has written in the first names of the other students in the play next to their characters' names. She played Aunt Ethel which was one of the main characters. I googled this play and it is still available for purchase and staging. In fact, I found plenty of references to high school and local theater classes putting it on to this day. It's considered a comedy or farce with the themes of dating and family. Given my penchant for keeping paper things, I do still have this play. It is so old and the cover made of such cheap paper that it feels like a piece of tissue paper in my hands, but it's still intact. The royalty notice on the second page says the fee is $10 for the first performance and $7.50 for repeat performances. Today the fee is $60. That's not much of a hike for, you know, some 60 years later. I'd love to see a version of it done today. In the play, Aunt Ethel tries to reassure her 23-year-old unmarried daughter by telling her, One of these days, you'll meet some handsome young captain on the good boat romance, and off you'll go, floating down the river of love. There's a lot of witty banter in this play, and I'm not sure how I actually acted it out on my own. Well, that's where the imagination comes in, I suppose. I didn't particularly like the idea of an Aunt Ethel, but she had a lot of good lines in the play, so I'm sure Mom enjoyed her too. I think this exposure to so much reading material probably kept my teenage poetry from totally falling into the trap of sentimental and melodramatic drivel. I mean, I couldn't keep the woe is me theme totally out of the poems, but it's always somewhat saved by concrete detail sensory images that I find lacking from most teen poetry. Here's a case in point. 
This is a poem I wrote called Saturday Thinking. It is written on a piece of spiral notebook paper in cursive handwriting, blue ink. The handwriting makes me think the poem was probably written in 1976 or so. Saturday Thinking. Being alone isn't a time or place. It's a sound, like raindrops on a tin roof, drumming hands on a wooden table. Loneliness should be against the law. It should be banned in public places. I don't like to see sad faces when I'm trying to have a good time. Having always walked with a crowd, being alone is new. I thought it would change me, but now I realize it's only a state of mind. My uncle has a cat named Tricky. Tricky likes to rub up against people. I'm like that cat, so being alone is not for me. Yeah, I know there's nothing world-changing here. Cliches, rain on the tin roof, walking with the crowd, the state of mind, etc. But hey, it's got a cat named Tricky that almost saves it. This was probably written in the summer when I was tired of reading and play-acting and was trying to figure out what to do next. Most of my friends didn't live in town and not old enough to drive yet, I had a hard time getting together with them in the summer. Here's another poem I wrote. It's on loose-leaf paper in black ink. It was probably written around the same time. It's called Waiting for Summer. Today an old man moved in next door, and the wind carried the dandelions away. Laughter echoed down the streets as the birds flew south. From my window, I watched the endless stream of traffic. The boy across the street died when a car ran over him. The traffic never even slowed down. Some things stop for nothing. It has rained so much lately. The old man is hard at work in his yard. He hammers away on pieces of wood. I hope he is building an ark. I will be glad when summer comes. Until it does, I'll sit here and listen to the songs the wind makes as it whistles through the screen door. A block away, I hear a party start. Save a Tom Collins for me, I say. No one hears except my cat who looks at me strangely. I go to bed, still listening for the ice cream man's music to break the silence. What both of these poems have in common is that though the mood and the essential theme is true to my life, the details are made up. In my experience, having read a ton of teenage poetry when I was a teacher, this is unusual. Most teen poets are primarily confessional poets, unable or unwilling to entertain images and ideas not of their experience. I mean, how did I even know what a Tom Collins was? I'm sure I must have read about it. I didn't have a cat or an uncle who had one named Tricky. No boy next door was run over by a car. So I knew a poem had to exist in a clear sensory space outside of myself. The language had to create this space. In a play, this is even trickier. Yes, the language is the thing, 
but it has to be actual dialogue. It has to be language that people would use when conversing. In this way, a play is like a poem. Every word counts to develop the character, which in turn develops the theme in a play. In a poem, every word counts to develop the imagery, which in turn develops the theme. If there is no imagery in a poem, there is no theme that has an impact. That is, and that's what a poem is looking for, more than anything else. Impact. The way I have carefully arranged these words on a page is designed to have an impact on you, dear reader. That's what the poet says. The playwright says, the words that I have coming out of these characters' mouths is arranged to show you who they are and why their interaction matters in this world. Now, I love fiction, both novels and short stories, but for the most part, fiction writers work with words in a much different way. When words are used primarily to drive the plot, they definitely have impact, but it's a constant, subtle thing not so much an illuminating one. I believe we read poems and watch plays because we are looking for illumination. Novel novels can offer that too, but that's not the primary reason we read them. We read novels to be entertained by the story. So I'm, I'm going on about all of this because though I read tons of novels, I read tons of novels growing up, <clears throat> which is where my love of words came from. I also was intrigued by plays and the way that words are arranged when they are written to be spoken. After all, poetry comes from an oral tradition. It comes from a time when it was necessary. I have a book from 1928 that I love. It's called The Winged Horse, The Story of the Poets and Their Poetry by Joseph Oslander and Frank Ernest Hill. The first chapter is called When Poetry Was Necessary, and it says this. When poetry was first made, people used it for things very much like these. They were sure they could not sow wheat or barley, go out to sea in a ship, make their gods hear them, get well if they were sick, or fight their enemies without poetry. They might not have thought of poetry in just this way. For a long time, they didn't even know they were making it. But whatever these people did that was of any importance began or ended in poetry. If someone could have destroyed their poetry, they would have been frightened and helpless, as men would be today if all the newspapers, theaters, schools, and churches should suddenly and mysteriously be blotted out. Saying this right now on March 28th, 2020, in the middle of this pandemic, it seems eerie. We do not use poetry the way people once did. But if we ever lose it, there will be nothing left. There's another chapter in this book called How Poets Invented Plays. So that title pretty much explains everything I could say about this. 
Suffice it to say that poets invented the play form in the 6th century B.C. You may recall in an earlier podcast <clears throat> how I talked about our 6th grade class and that we acted out the Pied Piper of Hamlin, which was in play form in our textbook. Of the other pieces of literature I remembered from school life, the ones that stand out the strongest are Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth, obviously both plays written in poetic form. I was too much of an introvert to be an actor, though I have always entertained the idea of being one. And I've been drawn to plays all my life, and that's probably because of the poetry within them. As absurd as the plot of Romeo and Juliet is, especially their deaths at the end, you can't deny the poetry. When Romeo looks down at Juliet and thinks she is dead, he says the following, O my love, my wife, death that hath sucked the honey of thy breath hath had no power yet upon thy beauty. Thou art not conquered. Beauty's ensign yet is crimson in thy lips and in thy cheeks. Why art thou yet so fair? Shall I believe that unsubstantial death is amorous, and that the lean, abhorred monster keeps thee here in dark to be thy paramour? For fear of that, I still will stay with thee, and never from this palace of dim night depart again. Here, here I will remain with worms that are thy chambermaids. Oh, here will I set up my everlasting rest and shake the yoke of inauspicious stars from this world-wearied flesh. Now true, what I mainly remember from our study of this play in Mrs. Heltzel's ninth grade English class is when Renee Benshoff opened a ketchup packet to use as blood in one scene and the whole class was in an uproar as it shot out across the room. I am sure the poetry also made an impression, especially since we got to watch that naughty 1968 version of the film, and all of, all of us girls got to Google eye Leonard Whiting as Romeo. I will end with a poem about love that I had forgotten I wrote. I just found it in an old manuscript, and it's funny that it's inspired by a line from a short story and not a play or another poem. But it is a story that is incredibly poetic. It's called A Tree, A Rock, A Cloud, and it's by Carson McCullers. If you've never read it, please if you've never read it, please look it up. This poem is about love, but about how love must begin not with another person, but with the solitude of self in the natural world. I can date it exactly to the year 2012 because of references in it. It's called the same thing as McCullough's story. 
a tree, a rock, a cloud. And there's a line from uh, McCullough's story that's quoted underneath the title. Son, do you know how love should be begun? Moving Backward was the name of the first collection of poetry I put together. I was 15, and I typed the poems on half sheets of paper and arranged them inside a full piece of typing paper. Thirty-five years later, I still have the collection, though it is embarrassing to read. Much of life is embarrassing. The things we love, the people we love, the ways we love are embarrassing. Even to speak of love is embarrassing. We are backward in our conversation until backward becomes necessary for anyone who has learned to love in the wrong order, in the order of human to human, rather than human to self, human to world, human to a tree, a rock, a cloud. Be backward, go back in, reverse, and it will come.